Good evening. That was a little lackluster, I think. Good evening. Oh, that's much better. I like that. All right. Well, it is a real pleasure, a privilege to be here this evening. I'm really glad I am here this evening because I got in my car and I think the battery's dead. So if my wife had gone somewhere else with Providence tonight, I might have been stuck at home. Um, but thankfully, that was not the case. My lovely wife came with me tonight. So, well, please open your Bibles up with me to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews. Now, if you're looking at your bulletins and you're seeing that the text for this evening is Hebrews all of chapter 1 and the first five verses of chapter 2, you may be clutching your heart and going, oh no, how long are we going to be here? But don't worry. Um, the text may be long, but I trust the sermon won't be as long. So, <laughs> well, let's open up. What's that? The the, so far. <laughs> well, let's open up to Hebrews 1. We'll read all through chapter 1 and in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Could somebody just grab me the water bottle that I left over there? Thank you. All right. This is God's holy word. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, and through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all, the, and let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his, and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment, like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Therefore... We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape 
if we neglect such a great salvation. It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Thus far, the reading of God's word. May he write it upon our hearts. Let's pray. Gracious and merciful Heavenly Father, who is sufficient for this? But this is your word, not man's word. This is the word that you've given to us this evening, and in fact, that your Holy Spirit would speak to us through. And so we pray that though none of us are sufficient, you would give us, grant us in this evening, eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to believe everything that the Holy Spirit would speak through this, His Word. And we ask this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, I think Hebrews is one of the greatest sermons ever preached. And I do think, and I agree with those who say that Hebrews has written at least, if not a sermon to be preached or having been preached, definitely sermonic in nature. This is certainly an exhortation to God's people. And it is, in fact, as you go through the book, sermon application, sermon application, sermon exhortation. So you almost feel like you should just read it and then say amen and be done. But perhaps we'll go into it a little bit further than that. The preacher, I'm not certain who wrote it. It's one of those anonymous books, right? You think, anonymous, why do we have anonymous books in the Bible? Well, actually, we have a lot of anonymous books in the Bible. In the New Testament alone, the first four Gospels are anonymous books. They have titles, but in no place in those books does the author sign, I, Matthew, write to you, I, John. So... Church tradition teaches us and a lot of reasons to believe that the, these were the authors, but they are technically, they're anonymous books. And the author in the, the book of Hebrews is another anonymous book. It doesn't come with the author's name attached to it. Now, I think the Gospels were written that way because the point of the Gospels wasn't the author, but in fact, the very subject of the, of the works and in fact, their call, it is not the gospel of Matthew, right? Not the good news of Matthew. It's the gospel according to Matthew. It's the good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Hebrews is perhaps a gospel in sermon form. It is another anonymous book, but its subject is Jesus Christ. It's whole the whole universe of Hebrews, and in fact, the whole universe in reality revolves around this one man, revolves around, around this one reality, Jesus. And so, I will do my best to do justice to the preacher this evening, um, the preacher in Hebrews. And we have, it's really, it's a lot of text, but it's really a very simple structure. The structure is, is simply this. It's pretty much in, in two parts. One is, I think, um, we might call it the sermon, the burden, and the apologetic. 
Uh, I get those three all together in like one thing because it's hard to decide what he's doing. But I think he's doing all three of those things. This is the preacher's sermon. This is the preacher's burden for God's people. And it's his apologetic to them. Now the second part, and that's all of chapter one, because the second part we get these first five, the first four verses that we're going to take in chapter two is the preacher's admonition. This is, um, I mean, we might call it I see, I have it here. I want to get it just right. <laughs> we would call it the admonition, the summons, and the pleading. It's an admonition, but it's a summons as well. And he is pleading with these Christians. Now, what, why the sermon and why the pleading? And they, really, we might be able to divide the whole book up this way. You know, these aren't very, really original sermon divisions tonight. Um, because this is what he's doing throughout the entire book. You see, the people he's writing to are in serious danger. They're in grave danger of falling away from Jesus Christ, of abandoning the gospel of Jesus Christ. We find out later in the book that these brothers and sisters are in grave danger of returning to the types and shadows of the law. Particularly, when we say that, the types and shadows of the law, we're particularly talking in this context sacrificial system that the Jews had, that the Israelites had, that had been in place since the very beginning up until the coming of Jesus Christ. But things, all those things that were once valid are no longer valid because Jesus has come and Jesus is the fulfillment of all of those things. So we find that we see this later in the book that the author is so concerned that they are going to go back to the types and shadows, once having held in their hands the substance, which is Jesus Christ. He is so afraid that now having had the substance, they will go back for fear. Under threat of persecution. Or for any number of other reasons that they will return to those types and shadows and embrace what no longer has any value. And that's why he says later in chapter 10, you may remember if you, if you read through the book of Hebrews, you might, there's a couple places in the book of Hebrews that are kind of, oh, they, they, they jar you. They, they, if you're starting to fall asleep, they get you awake. And there's this one place where he says, for if we continue sinning after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains any sacrifice for sins, but only the expectation of terrifying, a fearful judgment. Of course, he's not speaking about sin in general. He's speaking particularly of going back to those shadows. If their hope is now in the shadows which have no value anymore and they've abandoned the substance, there is no longer a sacrifice for sin. There is no longer a sacrifice for sin here. The only thing that they have to look forward to here is the expectation of terrifying judgment. He is trying to wake them up. And this is the beginning of, his, of this whole thing. So we've just done kind of Hebrews in a nutshell there. But is I think it's important to have this context for just chapter 1 here. What is going on with Jesus and angels? Well, the preacher has a burden this morning, or this evening, rather. Well, in this book, 
morning, evening, though anytime you read it. He has a burden. And that burden is for these Christians, that they would know Christ, that they would cling to Jesus Christ and fix their eyes on him and him alone. Dare I say, <laughs> that same burden that the preacher has for these Christians that he's writing to in this book is the same burden that the Lord has for us today. That has, that has not changed. Our contexts have changed. Our times have changed. Our clothes have changed. Our technologies have changed. But there remains one thing that is paramount in this life, and that is to fix our eyes on the author and finisher of our faith and never move them from him. Now he begins this. This is, there is the temptation of going through this at the fine-tooth combs. It's just a wonderful, incredible book. I mean, the, just what he says is so glorious. But he begins by making, I won't do that, by the way, go through it with a fine-tooth comb, not here. He begins by making a contrast. And this whole chapter is about contrast. We might say the most obvious contrast that jumps out to us is Jesus and angels. Well, we'll get to that in a minute. But there's other contrasts here. For example, long ago, God spoke. How did he at many, uh, God, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But. So, there's a contrast already being set up, right? What is the contrast? Long ago, in these last days. So long ago and right now. And I think we can include ourselves in these last days. I mean, if, if the author of Hebrews said we're in these last days, I think we still count, right? Um, so long ago and in these last days, in many portions and in many ways, through the Son. Well, yes, and this actually, in many portions and in many ways, and we might say through our Father's in the prophets, now how has he spoken to us? In his son. So he's created a contrast when, about the when, and there's also a contrast of to whom long ago he spoke to our fathers. But today, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So there is already a contrast being set up between what was and what is. What was and what is. And brothers and sisters, what is true till right now? It was true then when he penned it, when the, when the preacher penned it, and it is true now that we are looking at it this evening. There is this contrast. What was, what is. And what was was the many portions and in many ways that God spoke to our fathers in the, through the prophets. And we read the Old Testament and we see the many different ways that God revealed himself. He reveals himself to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob in dreams and in visions. He, he reveals himself th through speaking. He reveals himself through, to Moses in a burning bush and to the people on the mountain, fire and thunder, in a cloud of pill, in a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud. He revealed himself through the prophets. He revealed himself in many different ways. 
But now he has revealed himself in one way. In one final and ultimate way. And he has revealed himself in this way to us upon whom the end of the ages have come. He has revealed himself in his son, Jesus Christ. Now, we understand this is, he's already setting up this contrast, but he's, what he's moving toward is the big contrast. The real big contrast here, because this contrast that he's going to set up in the rest of this chapter, this is the contrast he is going to develop in the whole book, throughout the entire book of Hebrews. And we might say it's a contrast between promise and fulfillment. It is definitely, we might not, not that we might say that, we can say that. It is a contrast between promise and fulfillment. What was promised to Abraham? From your, I will make your seed like the sand of the seashore, like the stars in the heaven. In you, all the nations will be blessed. I will be your God. Your descendants. I will be a God to your, to your descendants after you. This was the covenant he made with him. There was promise in that, but there's promise even before that. We know that there was promise in the garden, right? The seed of the serpent, or the seed of the woman, will crush the head of the seed of the serpent. There's promise all throughout the Old Testament. There's promise in the law. There's promise in Moses. There's a promise given to David. There's a promise in, through David, through Solomon, of a great king who will come to sit upon the throne forever and ever, whose kingdom will have no end. There's all this promise in the Old Testament. There's all this expectation. The writer Hebrews says, brothers, sisters, it's no longer expectation but fulfillment. It's come, and it's come in Jesus. So, we see Jesus versus the prophets. How God spoke then, how God speaks now. We see Jesus versus the angels. So now that's, that's what I want to come to here. What is this with, thing with Jesus versus the angels? Well, I, I do want to say this right off the bat, and I hope this didn't sound too weird, but this isn't you get weird things. You hear people try to explain this. <laughs> I'm not even going to go into it, all the things that people say about this. I will just say this. Two things. This has nothing to do with an angel fetish. All right? It wasn't like the people he's writing to are just like, oh, not like today. All right, yeah, today touched by an angel. I don't, that's creepy. Um, you get all sorts of weird angel stuff going on. It had nothing, nothing like that. All right? That was not what the problem was with the recipients of this exhortation. They, they weren't, they didn't, there was no angel obsession, all right? Some people have suggested that the people that he was writing to had a sort of angelomorphic Christology. They were confusing the nature of Christ with that of angels. Again, no, not even here. Um, so, this really doesn't, but here's the point. This really doesn't have so much to do with angels at all. As much as it does to do with Moses. And the author of Hebrew is very subtle. He's, he's going to get much 
blunter as the book goes on. You can see that he gets a whole lot more in your face about this primary contrast, Jesus and Moses. And I don't think they could help but understand his point here. And I don't think we could miss it either if we read this in context. So, but we should know right up front this, that the author is setting up this great contrast between the most important figure in the Old Testament, in the Jewish, in the Jews' minds, the most important, besides, apart from Abraham, there is nobody more important than Moses. Abraham is father Abraham, but Moses dominates your entire life. There is nothing, no aspect of your life that Moses does not touch. He is everything. <laughs> All right? I mean, they asked Jesus, are you greater than our father Moses? Or I mean, sorry, our father Abraham. But... And they wanted to kill him for that, but they did kill him because they believed that he had controverted Moses and that he set himself up to be God. I mean, this was huge for them. He, they were constantly, constantly in conflict with Jesus Christ because they thought he was in conflict with Moses. So here, the most important figure in the Old Testament, in the Jewish scriptures, is held up in contrast to the most important person in the universe. That's what he's doing. Jesus versus Moses. Not like as though they were truly in competition, but understanding that he wants his readers to put them into perspective. And so, how is Jesus superior to the angels. How is he superior to Moses? Well, it's here in this first part, this first part of the book. He says, to, now he has spoken to us by his, and I have to say this, he spoke to us, in the, he spoke to our fathers and the prophets, right? That's what he's saying. What was the function of the prophets? What were the prophets prophesying? What were they teaching? The prophets were always going back to Moses. That's right. What does Isaiah say? To the law and to the testimony. If they speak not according to these, they have no light of dawn. That's what the prophets did. That's what their job was. To call the people back to the covenant. To call the people back to the Lord. They called the people back to Moses, in a sense. But now... He's spoken to us in Christ. Now, who is this Jesus? Who is this Son? He is the heir of all things. The heir of all things. So, He is the true Son. Jesus is the true heir. He is the true Son. Now, Israel, this is, by the way, this part, this first, these first four verses are echoed in the citations that the author makes of the Hebrew scriptures in, the, in verses 5 through um, 14, basically. So this whole thing about him being the true son, the true heir, is later then echoed in verses 5 to 9, where he says, to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son today, I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. 
And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. I was just talking about, to somebody this morning about this particular phrase, the firstborn, a phrase which is also used by John um, in his gospel, um, John 3.16, but even in the first chapter of John, speaking about the firstborn. This is a word, it's very interesting, this is a word that I believe has an allusion to Isaac. It is a word used for Isaac, actually, in Genesis 22, in the Hebrew, when God says, take your son, your only son, your only begotten son, to, and, you know, you will sacrifice him on, um, up in the mount I will show you. Um, thing is, he wasn't his, oh, he had the other son, too, but that wasn't the point of what God was saying. This was the son of promise. Isaac was the son of promise. Isaac was the fulfillment of that promise to Abraham. In a like manner, Jesus Christ, in a greater manner, he is the fulfillment of everything. But he is the greater Isaac. When he brings this firstborn into the world, it wasn't like when Isaac was born. In this case, God commands all his angels to worship. Let all the angels of God worship him, but the angels are ministers. They're winds, flames of fire, but of the sun. So there's that first one to nine, um, also of the sun. See, now it has that connotation with Abraham, but the true son also has a connotation with kingship. Remember, he is David's son. <laughs> the son of David. Um, and so he quotes, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. This is of the son, he says. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is a scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. This is kingly. This is all, this is all regal. He's anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Um, I, I just want to stop it. Who are his companions? Well, I think in, in, in the author's mind here, beyond Moses, beyond Abraham, beyond Isaac, beyond Jacob, Jesus Christ is beyond all. And he is the heir. Not, not the heir like Isaac was the heir. Abraham is looking for that heir. But Jesus Christ isn't the heir of an earthly kingdom even. He is the heir of all things on heaven and on earth and under the earth. That is what Hebrews is saying. Beyond all of his companions, there is no one who compares to Jesus. He is the son and the heir of all things. That makes him greater than the angels. Or, for to understand what he's getting at, greater than than Moses. It is significant that though Moses delivered them from Egypt and though he led them through the wilderness, Moses did not enter the land. But he only saw it from a distance. The greater than Joshua, <laughs> he brings full and complete redemption to his people. See, as all these types and shadows, promise and fulfillment, now, what else is Jesus? He's the mediator of creation, and he's sovereign over it. 
That's Elsa. He says, but through whom he created the world and he sustains all things by his powerful word. So he not only is the heir of all things, but he has created all things. He sustains and upholds all things. Jesus Christ is mediator of all creation and he is the sovereign over it. Verse 10, and you, Lord, this is the father speaking to the son. How powerful to understand. I mean, the author Hebrews is very bold here. This is God speaking to the son. If you wrap your mind around this, using the divine name in you, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish. The whole world is the work of the hands of Jesus Christ. But all this will perish. But Jesus remains forever. They will wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed. But you are the same and your years will have no end. Near the end of this book, he comes and says of the Son, he says of Jesus, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Therefore, we will not fear. Ah, this one who is mediator of creation, and he's sovereign over all things, is greater than Moses. And finally, it says that he is eternal and pre-existent and shares eternal and pre-existent glory with the Father. He says he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by his powerful word. He is more excellent than Moses because he gave Moses the law. <laughs> I mean, because he is the glory of the eternal God. Moses cannot be greater than the lawgiver himself. And that is what Hebrews is saying. How can the angels be greater than the one who gave them the law? How can Moses possibly be greater than this one who is the glory of the eternal God, the exact imprint of his nature. Words don't do it justice, really. So it is this, Moses, Jesus, Moses, Jesus. This is very important for the preacher. <laughs> it's again, types and shadows. And as we've said, Moses delivered the people but he never, he didn't bring the people into their rest. He didn't bring the people into the inheritance. Jesus delivers. This is what he says. Now this is what makes Jesus, uh, if, if all the rest that we have said wasn't good enough, this one is the crowning achievement. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, who made purification for sins? The priests. 
made purification for sins. You know why Jesus is greater than Moses? Because Moses, except in, except in one extraordinary circumstance where Moses had to offer a sacrifice for the priests in order to ordain the priests to their office. Apart from that, Moses did not offer sacrifice. Aaron and his sons, the priests, offered sacrifice. They mediated. Moses sees God face to face, or speaks to God face to face, but the priests mediated redemption between, and forgiveness between God and his people. They were the mediators between God and his people. But Jesus is far superior to Moses, because not only is he all of this, but he is also the mediator between God and man. He is the great high priest. And once he had made purification for sins, to show that it was final and perfect, he sits down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And that's when he says, having become as much superior to the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than theirs. Now, what does he mean to say by this? He was already superior to the angels. And this is, part of this is he, the, the, the preacher's point. Jesus is superior in every way to everything. He is superior to Moses, superior to the angels, superior to the priesthood, superior to, he is the Israel. He is Israel. He is the, and that's what the firstborn son metaphor also refers to. Jesus, God says to Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son. Let my firstborn son go that he may serve me. If you do not let my firstborn son go, I will kill yours. That's what he says in Exodus. Not quite verbatim, but it's pretty close. That's what he says to Pharaoh. And he does it. Israel was his, for Jesus is Israel. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything. So how is it that Jesus, who is the, the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature, how is it that he became superior to the angels? And, and how is it that he inherited a name that is more excellent than theirs? Now, my wife told me the other day, I had an opportunity to preach this text in another place, and she had the opportunity to be there. As we were driving home, she says, there was something you said in that sermon that, I don't know, it was one of those big long words and you didn't bother to define it for anybody. I'm like, what was that? And I kept, we're looking, so she had actually recorded it, which is terrible to listen to yourself. But you know, they preach. But anyway, she, she puts it on, she's finding it, scrubbing through it. We finally got to it and it was this. All right, it's about what I'm going to say. This, and I will define the words <laughs> just in case. This inferiority, superiority, is not an ontological inferiority or superiority. That means ontological meaning it doesn't have to do with the nature of his being, with who he is in his being. It's an economic superiority or inferiority. And that, in other words, it has to do with his work, with what he does. So with the working out of God's redemption and in the plan of salvation. So it's not as though he being eternal with the Father was somehow ever in his person ontologically 
in his being inferior to anything created. Of course not. But for a time, Moses was superior to everything. Because this is how God revealed his holy will, revealed even the way to come before him through the sacrificial system and through everything that Moses it was established through Moses. This was it. It was superior to anything else. But once Jesus had come and once Jesus accomplished his work on behalf of his people, he became superior to the angels. And we'll see the angels simply refer to Moses because it was thought that, and it's implied, that the law was mediated or given to Moses, or given to Moses through the mediation of angels. This was a, this was a thought. We, um, there's some, implica some maybe implications of this in the, the Old Testament, but certainly we, the more we know, having better access to more information through Qumran scrolls and other, and other, inf and other older documents, I mean, what we know about the groups, you know, the ancient groups back in Israel at the time or in that land, we know that this was a common belief. So, whether it was, however that worked out, the author Hebrews is certainly using it as a jumping off point, right? But Jesus has inherited this name. How? Not just because he is the heir of all things and the Son. Not just because he is the mediator of creation and sovereign over it. Not just because he is the eternal God. But being all of those things, he has accomplished a full and perfect redemption as our great high priest. And he has sat down as king at the right hand of the majesty on high. It is finished. Our redemption has been finished, and it is complete. And that makes him superior to Moses in every way. So, before we finish up here, I'm going to wrap it up with the admonition. But I have to say this is very, this, that referring to these last two verses, 12 and 13. To which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Sometimes we think about that imagery of footstool for your feet as being something perhaps where Jesus is coming and conquering with a heavy hand or conquering in, the, in, with, in judgment. But actually, for Israel... Being God's footstool meant something different. Israel had this concept that they were God's footstool because it was the place of honor. And Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 31.9, right, he, right, he says, With weeping they shall come, and with pleas for mercy I will lead them back. I will make them walk by brooks of water in, in a straight path in which they shall not stumble. Oh, uh, sorry, not Jeremiah. It was Jeremiah, but it's in Lamentations. My bad. 2.1. How the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has, cast down from, he, has, he has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. This was a, a, a position of privilege and honor. I think what is being said of the Son is that his work of redemption 
will bring in all of his enemies. Now not as enemies, but as friends. Now not as enemies, but now as children, beloved children. And weren't we once his enemies? Doesn't Paul say we were his enemies when Christ died for us? Making us a footstool for his feet. He has now remembered his footstool because the Father has promised that this redemption that he has accomplished will be effective. And it is, till this day, to this day, full and perfect and free and effective. Not just for them, but for us too. That's what faith embraces today. Now the admonition, and we will end with this. We must pay much closer attention, he says, to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Now he goes on, he says, if that message declared through angels proved unalterable, you know, it was reliable and every disobedience received its just punishment. What's he talking about? Moses. If that, if Moses, if disobeying Moses brought upon the people the full force of God's displeasure and, and judgment, and it did. Daniel in Daniel chapter 9 prays. He says this in his great prayer, seeking forgiveness from God for, on behalf of the people. Our fathers did not obey you. They walked away from your law. To us is confusion of face. To us belongs shame. And to you forgiveness, Daniel says. <laughs> so there, but there was that. They disobeyed. And God brought all those curses of the law that he promised upon them. Now if that proved reliable, from the lesser to the greater. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation that was first announced by Jesus himself? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And he preached to them the, kingdom of the, the gospel of the kingdom. And then it was testified by the apostles. And God bore witness to the apostles' testimony through signs and wonders and then gifts of the Holy Spirit, which he, which he gave to each according to his will. And so the author tells us today, he told them then, he's telling us today, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. What we have heard from whom? Well, what we have heard from God through his son. What is it that we've heard? The gospel of his son. That's what's in view here. And brothers and sisters, we must pay much closer attention. I don't think just because we don't have this temptation today to run off and sacrifice a bull or a goat or bring little two, two little turtle doves to, a, to the high priest or something and make atonement for our sins in that way, that we, have, that we, are, at some, we are somehow now not at risk from drifting off. The metaphor here, the metaphor of a boat, not anchored to anything, something that just drifts away. And the problem with drifting away, sometimes you don't even realize it. It just happens. Well, then nothing just happens, I guess. There's all things leading up to it. But see, that's the point. That's the point. But by the time, some, by the time we realize we've drifted away, it's too late. 
How do we get back to shore? Now, God in his goodness, even when his children drift away, he, find, he brings them back into shore. But the author of Hebrews would say, don't put the Lord your God to the test. We don't want to drift away. We don't want to find ourselves far from home in a far country. And how easy it is to drift away. So many things. We just think about the distractions of this world. How distracted are we? I mean, people can't even walk down the street today without running into things because they're on their, because they can't walk without looking at their phones. And you say, I'm not against phones and tablets, phones, recorders. I mean, I'm all into technology. But for heaven's sake, how many, how much human potential is just wasted? How much of our lives, I, I, mean, I mean this, how much, of, how much potential that we could have invested in the Lord or in our families or in the church? Or in, in, in developing our gifts and our talents for the good of others, to serve others. How much of that is just, I mean, I want to use a, I'm, sorry, I'm just kidding, how much of that is just pissed away because we are so consumed with the distractions of this world. I could, just can't think of any other way to say it. Ask yourselves, I ask myself, is this not how we begin to drift away? when we're not even any longer thinking about Jesus. There is, of course, the deceitfulness of sin that we've mentioned. We don't need, we shouldn't play with sin. We should fear sin, perhaps above all else. People fear the devil and the demons. Fine, um, not a good thing to mess with either, I think. A cult activity and all, that's not good to play around with either. But you know what? I. The devil hardly needs any help these days. I, Paul looked at himself and said, there is nothing good in me. How easy is it for us to drift off into our own selfish worlds and justify ourselves? Say, well, it's okay because I'm American, and this is how we do things, and, that, and we, we, you know, I don't have time to go into it, but you get it. The love of self, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, all these things are of the world and not from the Father. And they're what cause us to drift away. They're what cause us to embrace what is empty and hollow what does not satisfy or save, what can never satisfy or save. At least they were going back to something that had, or they were tempted to go back to something that had been valid. How much greater is our temptation to embrace things that have no value whatsoever? So, the admonition, we must pay much closer attention, be much more diligent. And what does that mean? To quote the author of Hebrews, oh, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and has sat, and has sat down at the right hand of God the Father. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.
Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus, who is greater than the angels, who is greater than Moses, who has given us, who has brought to us a perfect and full and free redemption. Let us never take our eyes off of him, lest we drift away. Keep us, O Lord. Keep your people close to you all of our days, all the days of our life. And may we walk with our eyes, not on this world or on the things of this world, but on our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, author and finisher of our faith. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.